Get your Bibles, will you read with me Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 1 through verse 4, four short verses, but powerful verses this morning. Paul writes this, Ephesians 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but catch it, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Well, William Wilberforce's schedule was incredibly busy. Serving at British parliaments, trying to give his life efforts to end the British slave trade, took the majority of his energy. But even though William gave so much to his country, he was determined to not allow that to affect his role at the home of being a father and a parent. So William, when he was traveling, he wrote strenuous letters to his children, long letters that covered a variety of topics, but most often, William wrote to his children talking about theology, pointing them to the beauty of the gospel, instructing them from afar. And what made these letters even more powerful is they, they definitely did not come easy to William. William Wilberforce suffered from ulcerative colitis, and in that day they prescribed you opium to try to deal with the pain. Opium side effect made his eyesight incredibly horrible. So here there's a picture of this man who's, who's struggling to see, serving long hours for his country, and then coming into where he was staying and, and struggling to see and writing these letters to his children. So he wrote these long letters to his children, but then when he was home, he, he gave himself to them fully. He used to run with them through the garden. He used to read to them. He used to take them to the museums. It was a common sight to see William playing with his children's friends as well. He, he spent a, a, a long time devoting himself to spending time with his children. Then on Sunday, which most often was the only day of week that, that William Wilberforce was able to see his children, he still made it a priority to take his children to the local church. They gathered together as a family, worshipped their God. Then they went home on Sunday afternoon, and then they prayed together as a family. This became a tradition for the rest of his life of praying for his family together. But then when his children went to college, he went right back to writing them letters. Then, after he wrote them letters on a Sunday afternoon, he dedicated himself to praying for each child by name for hours on end. What was the result of this? Six children who passionately loved Jesus. See, William Wilberforce was a great man for his country. But what we need to see this morning, he was a greater man in the home. I want to talk to you on the topic of parenting and pointing our children to eternity and giving our life's effort to, to this treasure that God has gifted us with. Because when my mind thinks of parenting, my mind goes to Psalm 127. And the psalmist would say that children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a treasure. And then he writes that psalmist, he says that the children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. It's a powerful voice, verse. It tells us the treasure that children are to us, that, that yes, that we should value the children in our church, and not only value the children in our church, but value children in our culture. And then he uses this word of describing their children as 
arrows in the hands of a warrior, and he's talking about this treasure. And like any treasure, it comes with great responsibility. What you and I have to understand is, yes, they are this great treasure, and they're, they're this great arrow in the hands of a warrior, but, but arrows don't shoot themselves. It's the parent's responsibility to aim, to wreck, to, to send off your children in the right direction. And Paul this morning is going to tell us the direction in which we should aim our children for. There's a great responsibility here. Here's the thing about parenting. Often where we direct our children, they will follow. And you see that responsibility, for good or for worse, that where we point our children, they will go. And Paul tells us this morning, our aim should be for eternity. He spends only four short verses but verses that when we put into application, it, it makes a world of difference on our children. Because as you and I read this text, there should be a weight to, to these words. It tells us, again, this responsibility. And many of us in this room, as we think about parenting, you feel that weight. Many times we come to the table kind of not really sure of what we're doing. Maybe thinking, man, if I do this next thing, maybe it's going to lead down the wrong road. I'm going to ruin my children by the decision I make. Or, or oftentimes we think, man, am, am I doing this thing right? Am I setting my children up for success? Many of us come into parenting with this weight upon our shoulders, and that's why we don't start this text in verse 1, but we go back to verse chapter 5, and we see in verse 18 that everything flows from verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, and on. It says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled, plureo, this idea of being overflowing with this sense of the Spirit in our lives. In essence, what Paul is telling us is that parenting is not called to be a solo task. That he has gifted you with his spirit, God himself inside of you to empower you, to direct you, to give you wisdom in this thing called parenting. That his spirit would, would give you what you need to be able to raise your children unto the Lord. Because we're going to need them, right? Because parenting is tiring sometimes. We've all been in those moments in which you watch your, your two-year-old or your four-year-old or sometimes even your older children throw tantrums in the middle of the stores and you're wondering, how am I going to handle this? In that moment, you need Jesus. And in those teenage years, a child starts talking back to you. Sometimes they ignore you. They don't even act like they love you. In those moments, you are going to need Jesus. And then when you take them off to college, you're wondering, did I do enough for them to succeed? And they call you on the phone maybe one night and they're asking for wisdom and you're thinking, what do I tell my child? You're going to need him in that moment. And the great news is that he is there to empower us, God's spirit to, to be able to give us wisdom, the strength, the patience, the grace needed to do this thing called parenting. Because parenting is hard, it's difficult, but thankfully, Paul tells us that we have God's Spirit to empower us along the way, and thankfully, he's the one who is going to give us the strength we need, because as you remember throughout the book of Ephesians, the theme that we're reading is the theme to be different, called to be different in every aspect of our lives, specifically when it comes to parenting. 
not called to parent the, the same way the rest of the world is called to parent. No, we, we parent with this gospel-centered aspect to our lives. Again, this is why we're going to need God, and it begins, Paul tells us, first thing we learned this morning, it begins with our thoughts of children in general. This passage is going to show us, these short four verses are going to show us how valuable children are in the first place. Even Paul, for Paul to, to mention children in this passage tells us that, that they were center, a center part of the local body. There they were in the midst, as Paul is directing them, he first begins by saying, children, obey your parents, meaning, as you understand what the, kind of the local church did back then, is they used to read these letters together, meaning the children were present for Paul to even speak of them. And that said something, specifically in a culture in which children were devalued. Roman culture at the time, those babies who were unwanted, literally in Ephesus, they began to, to kind of dig up these the, the, around the area of the city walls. And what did they find? They found children's bones. Those babies who were unwanted in Rome at the time in Ephesus were thrown literally over the city wall where they were left to, to die. Babies who were sick were left. Babies who, who maybe had a disability were left to die there because they, they just didn't want them. Many times because it was a threat to their kind of climbing the social ladder within Ephesus at the time. Other times they just wanted personal freedom. If that sounds familiar, it should. Our culture is very similar in some ways. In fact, the New York Times wrote a, a, an article a couple years ago about this idea of depopulation. I know it kind of sounds crazy as our world has hit 8 billion people, but this article is really speaking about this need of countries dealing with this problem called depopulation. Depopulation is just that, when the death rate is, exceeds that of the birth rate. So you're losing more people than you're actually giving birth to. Major problem in Eastern Europe, a major problem in Japan, even parts of India where the kind of the population is growing at staggering rates. Many of these kind of sub parts of India is still dealing with this idea. Just this week was written an article about the Muslims within India dealing with depopulation. Again, the idea of the death rate being higher of that of, of the birth rate. In Japan, this is taking place at staggering rates. The first time in over a century, Japan's birth rate is lower than that of a million people in the year. That has been taking place for the last five years. Just this past year, that means that they are losing 635,000 people in a year. Over a half a million people. Their, 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 their population is decreasing by half a million people a year. And they begin to study, why is this taking place in Japan? Again, children are thought to be a threat to those of, of wanting financial stability. It's a threat to those wanting their personal freedom of what they want to partake in in their business world. Or, or whether it's just partaking in kind of the, the, the vacations or anything. They're thought to be a threat, so therefore their people are not having children. And where has this idea of depopulation or children being a threat led us? led us to, to create an industry, a billion-dollar industry from keeping us from keeping pregnant, and then by chance, if you get pregnant, another billion-dollar industry to kill that baby. You just look at the staggering stats of New York City today, and just even in 2012, in which they would say that the abortion rate in New York City is 60% that of the birth rate, meaning for every 1,000 children that are born in, in New York City, 
598 of them are killed. In one population in New York City for the past several years, we're killing more babies by abortion than that population, than that demographic is giving birth. Think about that for a second. More abortions by one demographic in New York City than the birth rate. Literally killing more babies than we're actually giving birth in New York City. And that should, that should hurt our hearts as the church. Children are valuable. They're valuable to God. That's why Jesus says, come to me. Let the children come. And as a church, we should be saying the same thing. We should give them a solution to say, yes, we will take care of your baby. You don't want your baby? We'll take them in. That's why we're so passionate about foster care and adoption in this place. Because children are valuable to the heart of God, and therefore they're valuable to his children within the local body. And that's what we see in the first century church. What's so interesting is the philosopher Aristides would say this to the emperor at the time in 125 AD. He writes of the church. He says, they do not wor- or he says, speaking of the church, they do not worship strange gods and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. And catch this next part. And from the widows, they do not turn away their esteem and they deliver the orphan." From him who treats them so harshly. Isn't it amazing? The first century church in 125 AD is already taking in children and saying, We will care for the orphans. And you just walk your way through church history and you see the same thing. Charles Spurgeon started an orphanage caring for the children. George Mueller started an orphanage caring for the children. You just walk your way through and you see the church saying, yes, children are valuable to us because they're valuable to our God. And in this place, what is the application for us? Again, as we look at this text, we see that children were a part of the service. So when we send our kids to children's ministry, it's not a a child care. No, we're discipling your child. We say that we should would take children seriously and we want to to guide them and direct them and point them to Jesus. Again, children are valuable to God. They should be valuable to us. And because we're the family, the local body, we should all take the discipleship of our children seriously. I love what Tony Morita says. He's a pastor up in, in, in Raleigh. He, he says this aspect, he says that, that every church member, it, they don't have the same responsibility as the parents upon that children, but they do have the responsibility to care for that children like their family. In other words, we need to see ourselves as the aunts and the uncles of all the children within this place. And as aunts and uncles of all the children, we should take their discipleship seriously. Tony Morita, how he flushes that out within his own church, he says every member of his church serves within the local children's ministry to kind of flesh that out, this idea of all of us caring for all the children in this place. Children are, are valuable. They're not second-class citizens, and they don't become first-class when they grow up. They're already valuable in this place, and we take their discipleship seriously. We want to care for children because God considers children close to his own heart. Second truth we see in this passage is that we can pull from this passage that authority and rules are necessity in, 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 in good parenting. That authority and rules are a necessity in good parenting. Look at what it says again in verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
The emphasis there is that parents will have rules that they have to obey. And what Paul is really telling us in that moment is he's wanting us to understand that, that children are not the rulers of the house, but the parents are. The parents are the ones giving the rules, the guidelines. And it's the children's responsibility to come under those guidelines and to obey them. And you might be asking the question, why is Paul even having to say this in the first place? Like, isn't that a given, that the, chil- or the, the children are the ones who are called to submit and the parents are the ones who are called to lead and give the rules and the guidelines? And yes, that's true, until you realize that rules and regulations, it takes hard work. As parents, you're going to give some rules and regulations, and what does that mean? That means you're going to have to follow through with discipline if they disobey them. Again, it's hard work. How many times do you have to tell your children, you've got to eat this meal, and then they're going to push you and, and kind of argue with you, no, can I eat just this much, and then kind of put it off to the side, or I don't want to wear those clothes, and, and then you're arguing over their clothing, and then, then bedtime comes. They don't want to go to bed when you tell them. And all these things, it takes follow-through, right? It's hard. And then those moments, the temptation to say, well, just have your way. I'm tired of having to go to battle against the rules and the guidelines. And there's that temptation to kind of just push yourself and say, well, children, you have your way. And then you add that to the temptation of wanting to be liked. Children, sometimes they're not going to like the rules and the guidelines. And then you realize that, yes, parenting does take hard work. I remember a time in youth ministry in which they always used to uh, kind of joke around that my job was so easy. And then I told them, I said, well, if you think my job's easy, here it is. You're not leaving this van. I made one of them in charge. I said, you're not leaving this van until it's all cleaned up. As you can imagine, none of the youth kids wanted to obey that kid. And then he began to see, well, this really isn't easy because I can't get any of them to obey my rules. And the same thing applies to parenting. It's hard. It's difficult. And the temptation is to say, man, it's, I, I, I don't want to to follow through but here's the thing that we have to realize that if our goal is discipleship and parenting which it should be Deuteronomy 6 4 the great Shema passage hero hero Israel the Lord our God is one love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul and your mind and that's what does he say next he says these things that I teach you they should be upon your heart and then he says teach them diligently Teach them diligently to your children. He says when you, when you uh, uh, wake up, or when he says, he says you stand in your room, or you walk by the way, or when you rise, or when you lie down, you should teach them. You should speak of these things. In essence, being a parent means that you disciple. The things of the Lord should be upon your mouth when you rise up and when you lie down. When you're in your house and when you're away, you should, you should find those moments of discipleship. And again, if this discipleship is taking center place in our house, if it's the main goal in our parenting, therefore rules and regulations are going to be involved in our parenting as well. Because what does discipleship mean? It means I'm trying to teach my children what it looks like to die to themselves and live for Christ. I'm trying to teach them what it looks like for me to die to myself and begin to live for Christ. And our children, again, are, are, are wanting to be the rulers of their house. They don't want to be told the bedtime. They don't want to be told what to, to watch on TV. So therefore, what I need to do in my parenting is I need them to teach them the joys of what submission looks like. 
I need to teach them what it looks like to joyfully submit to my to, to, to parents. I, I need to, 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 to joyfully to, tell them and teach them what it looks like for me to joyfully submit to my God, to God-ordained authority over my life. This is what parenting is all about, to teach and shape them what it looks like to joyfully come over God-ordained authority in our lives and submit to that authority over our lives. This is what Paul is wanting us to get to understand, and, and rules and regulations are going to be a part of that. Because here's the thing. The greatest threat to my child is not outside my walls. I know we often think that, that we get scared of sending them into the school system or whatever we send them into. We think that's this, this greatest threat. But what I need to see is my greatest threat to, to, to my child lies within them. It's their own sinful hearts. It's their own sinful pride. And if that thing isn't corrected, the scriptures are clear. They're going to be sent to eternity separated from God. So therefore, what it looks like for me to be a parenting is to parent towards the heart. To point them to Christ. But parenting is kind of strange in this area. Because the change I'm desiring, parenting doesn't create on its own. The desire of that transformed heart, it doesn't happen on its own through my parenting. But what my parenting can do is point them to the one who can change their hearts. My parenting can point them to the God who can come in and transform their hearts. So therefore, my parenting needs to be this aspect of pointing them to their Savior. Because <coughs> I look at this text, what I begin to see is that parenting is somewhat strange. My child has a fallen nature. Especially before they come to Christ, which means that they will not be able to follow all my rules. And that is, can be refreshing in some sort of strange way. It means I don't have to be embarrassed about the tantrum thrown out in, when I'm shopping through Belk. I don't have to be embarrassed about it because my child has fallen. It's going to happen. My rules are going to be broken. But in those moments of when they break those rules, I see it as a discipleship opportunity. In those moments when they're breaking my rules, here's my opportunity to see, disciple them well and say, you know what? You can't do this on your own. Through your own power, you cannot obey my rules. So therefore, you need somebody to come into your life, transform your heart, empower you to live in Christian living. You need God to come in and to forgive you and give you grace for these moments. So every moment my child breaks my rules is not a moment for me to be necessarily thinking that all things are falling apart in my household. But it's a moment for me to see here's a teaching moment. Here's a moment disciple. Here's a moment to push my child to Jesus, to show them here's the one who's, who can save them and rescue them. So what does that look like? Let me give you four different ways in which this kind of takes place in, our, in, in discipleship and discipline. First of all, when my child breaks a rule, I need to explain to them what rule they broke. I know we all kind of assume that our children are smart enough to kind of catch on what rule they broke. That's not true all the time. So here's my opportunity. Say, this is, this is the rule you broke. This is what you did wrong. This is why this rule is for your good. Some, sometimes you're just teaching them, hey, God has put me over your life as your authority. This is for your good. You know how many times my dad told me that? My dad was over me, that God placed him in my life to be my authority. It was good for me to hear that. 
So I tell them, hey, this is what you broke. This is why this is for your good. Rules are not taking away our freedom. But they're actually a blessing by God to give us an opportunity to find more freedom within those rules. So I tell them what they broke. Secondly, I, I, I remind them that it really is a heart issue. That, that I'm not looking just for outward behavior, behavior modification, but really what I'm looking for is a transformed heart. This is what God is after in your own life as well. So in this second stage, I show them what they broke, but now I move into getting aspect to, look, uh, the, to allow them to, to see their heart. Ask heart questions. What was going in your mind when you, when you partook and, and you broke this rule? What were you after? Was there any idol there? And I know this gonna, conversation kind of differs on their age group, but really what you're really wanting to do in this moment is to move them away from self de, de, uh, self-sufficiency and you're wanting to move them to God dependency. You're wanting to move a well from self-sufficiency into God dependency. What they need to see is God is after the heart. Not just after the behavior. Remember, the Pharisees had the behavior. They had the outward behavior modification down to a T, but their hearts were far from God. So what we need to teach our children in that moment is not good enough not to just hit your brother or your sister, but God is calling you to love your brother and your sister. And when they begin to see that I can't do this on my own, I'm not the one who can transform my heart, again, it's an opportunity for you to point them back to the one who can to remind them that they can't obey these rules on their own. And I think we often forget that stage in parenting. We just assume that they can do it. But here's our moment to say, no, you need the spirit in your life. I reminded my time in youth ministry again in which this girl came into my office. I think I've told you the story before. And she's sitting there and she's asking the question to me. She says, Aaron, I see my need for Jesus Christ and a savior to get me into heaven, but I don't see a need for a savior on my daily basis. And I turned to her and I said, and how do you go about obeying in obedience throughout your day? Like the whole pur- purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us that we can't do it. When you look lustfully at a woman, you're already committed adultery in your heart. It's a heart issue. When, when, you're, when you're, somebody slaps you on the, on the cheek, you turn to them and give them the other cheek. How do you love your enemies? I can't do that on my own. The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to point you to a Savior who can transform your heart. And we need to do the same thing in our parenting. Get them to see the heart. God is after the heart. And they can't transform their heart on their own. So therefore, they need to rely on Jesus Christ on a daily basis to give them the ability to obey. Third step, at first I tell them what the rules they, they broke. I, I point them to the heart. And again, the third step is again is showing them of their need of their Savior. Again, getting them away from, from uh, the idea of self-sufficiency, moving them to God dependency. And, and fourthly, what I need to do is show them unconditional love. My God loves me with unconditional love. Therefore, in my discipline, I need to show them that, that, that obedience is not the way to my heart. But they already have my heart. Unconditional love, this aspect in our discipline, we need to show them that, yes, we love them. And because we love them, this is why we discipline. Because did you notice in the text, Paul gives us a warning, doesn't he? He points us back in this text. He says, specifically, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Why does he speak to fathers in this moment? 
He's not speaking to fathers because this is the only people who discipline the home. After all, he already told us in verse 1, children, obey your parents, both of them. Meaning both parents are giving instruction, giving discipline. But there is kind of a sense that the, that the father is the head. As the head of the family, therefore, they're responsible for the discipleship of the family. Therefore, fathers, you need to hear this, that you don't kind of put the, the, the discipleship role upon the church. It's your responsibility as well. We're coming to come alongside you and help you in that. And it's not your wife's responsibility either. You as the head take on the discipleship role for your children. second reason I think he points us to the fathers is this idea that, that often through the fathers, our children get an image of what they think God is like. Often through you and your role, they're going to kind of get a picture in their mind of what their God is like and what we need to show them in those moments. Is our God is a God of unconditional grace, unconditional love. A God who loves them in those moments, not provoking them to anger. Let me give you two ways in which we provoke our children to anger. First of all, we do it by leading with discipline first and love second. What we need to do is reverse that order. We lead with love, and out of that relationship with our children, that's how we discipline. We reverse those orders often as parents. If we reverse those, or if you do it, as you, maybe you've seen it in your own kind of past if your father always led with discipline and not love, and this is the way that you think that you're going to gain your father's love is through obeying their rules, what happens? You either create somebody who's self-righteous or somebody who's a, rebel a rebellious child. If they think the way to your heart is through obedience, if they think they can achieve it, therefore they're going to become self-righteous. They can do it on their own, this is the way to your heart. Or they realize that there's no point of it because they can never be, obey correctly and uh, kind of gain your approval, so therefore they become rebellious. Ellen DeGeneres used to talk about this idea of this self-approval uh, kind of uh, a sticker that she had upon herself. Kind of like the nicotine patch that, that, that the nicotine patches you put, put along, it kind of gives you hits throughout the day. She said this self-approval kind of patch was upon her in which she just needed hits throughout the day. She talks about this self-approval, trying to gain it from all these different people. As she's talking about this patch upon herself, she realizes that, there's, that it never really completely fulfills itself throughout the day. Our children have that same patch. They're longing for approval. They're going to do whatever it takes to jump through your hoops to gain your approval. You put out the hoop of, of, of athletics and, and you say, this is the way to, to your heart. They're going to jump through those hoops. Put out the hoop of academics and say, this is the way to your heart. This is how they gain your approval. They're going to jump through those hoops. And what you need to allow your children to see is there's no hoops to jump through. They already have your heart. They already have it. Isn't it interesting as you look at Jesus' life, before he even starts in ministry, what do we see the Father say? This is my child in which I am well pleased. Before he even begins, God says, I'm already pleased. And you look at how God disciplines himself. He says he disciplines us because he loves us. In other words, the love is already there. Our children need to see the unconditional love first. Second way, we kind of provoke them to anger. Provoke them to anger by living hypocritical lives. 
You want to create the greatest damage upon your life? Tell your children to go to church and you not go to church yourself. Tell your children to pursue Jesus while you're not pursuing Jesus yourself. What we have to understand in parenting, our lessons are caught before they're taught. Lessons are often caught before they're taught. This idea that says, hey, you need to do what I say, not what you see, it does not work in parenting. Tiger Woods, I don't know if you're familiar with kind of his backstory. One thing you need to know about Tiger Woods is he cut off his relationship with his father early on because he was so upset that his father committed adultery. He couldn't understand why his father would cheat upon his mother, so he literally stopped talking to his own father because of this area. Couldn't understand that that his father would commit adultery upon his, upon his family. In 2009, we saw the picture of Tiger Woods and all the information came out that he's cheated with, slept with over, what, 100 women? Isn't it interesting? The very thing he hated and detested in his own father, he did the same thing. Lessons are caught before they're taught. If you want your children to pursue Jesus, you got to be the one who's pursuing Jesus first. If you want your children to fall in love with the local church, you got to be the one who falls in love with the local church first. If you want your children to be passionate about his glory, then you got to be passionate about his glory as well. I'm reminded of a father who did this well. His name was Crawford Loritz. Crawford Loritz has a son named Brian, and Brian is in ministry as well. Often Brian has the opportunity to kind of address his father and kind of introduce him at speaking engagements because they're both kind of traveling speakers. I love what Brian says about his father Crawford. Before he got up at one of his announcements, Brian stood up upon the stage and he said this, says, ladies and gentlemen, you are about to hear from Dr. Crawford Loritz, Jr., one of the greatest preachers our country has ever produced. He says, I'm biased because he is my father, but I have an inside scoop on how he lives his life. And what you need to know that this man is about to preach to you, the, 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 man, about, the man that is about to preach to you is more impressive in private than he is in public. You need to know that the sermon he's about to say with his mouth, Brian has seen with his life because Crawford lived it out. Catch that last part? He says that the man that is about to preach to you is more impressive in private than he is in public. And you need to know the sermon he's about to say with his mouth. I've seen him live with his life. Wouldn't that be great for your children to be able to say the same thing? That, that when your children get up, they say, I, I've seen this man's life. I've seen this woman's life. By the way they live is preaching to me the gospel. And again, as we look at this idea of parenting, I cannot do this on my own. And in those moments in which you're feeling overwhelmed in your parenting, it's a moment for you to come to the end of your rope and say, I can't do this on my own. I need somebody else's help. 
Great news is, again, God didn't create parenting to be a solo task, but he empowered you with his spirit to give you the energy, to give you the wisdom, to give you the love and the patience and the grace and the forgiveness. So that when your child looks at you, they get a good image of what their heavenly father is about. And maybe you're in this room and you say, man, I've got to make some changes. Greatness about the gospel is that you can start afresh today. You can say, this is the day I want to change how I live. Maybe you need help. Maybe it's in the, the, the area of alcohol. And when you come home, you drink a little too much to kind of to, to, to ease the nerves. And it's causing some problems in your relationship with maybe your wife or even your children. Maybe it's your temper or your anger. Whatever it might be, here's your moment to say, God, forgive me. I have fallen short. The great news of your gospel is that if I confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive it. Maybe you go to your children and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the mistakes I made. But today I want to, to, to point you unto the greatness of who your God is. I'm also reminded of Brian when he talks about his father Crawford. One of the things he always remembers is how quick his father was to go in to say, hey, I, I messed up. Will you forgive me? The stories of Crawford Loritz in his suit coming to his children's school, calling them out of class and saying, hey, I'm sorry. Sorry for losing my temper this morning. Will you forgive me? What an amazing picture what it looks like to be a godly parent. God, we confess that we need you. God, we need you. So many times in those areas in which we've, we've hated in our own parents, we confess we walked right into them as well. God, would you heal some of the brokenness within our own lives? that we would be able to be parents who, who turn the tide, that we would be parents that, that our children can say, yes, I've seen it with their own life, their passion for Jesus. So God, we pray for our children. We pray that, that you would be the God who transforms their hearts. God, that you would lead them to salvation that you would adopt them as your own children. God, guide us and direct us that we would point them unto you each and every day. God, we pray for those moments in which we failed, that even those you can use in our children's life, God, I pray that you would redeem them, that you would be with our children, and they would see unconditional love, unconditional love from their parents, most importantly, unconditional love from the God of the universe. Let them see the great sacrifice of your son, that he died for them so that they could live. We pray for your church. We pray for these things in your name.